Welcome to Journals of Self-Discovery. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Journals of Self-Discovery. If you've been enjoying the shows, please do me a favor and leave a rating on iTunes or Google Play, and also be sure to subscribe to the show. My guest today is Tess Hughes, who joins us all the way from Ireland. Tess is the author of the newly published book, This Above All, and facilitates several spiritual groups in her home country. I hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Tess Hughes. Tess, I want to thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you for asking me, Sean. Absolutely. I, I've i actually listened to a couple of other interviews that folks have done with you. I believe one was with uh, Conscious TV, and then there was another one that you did uh, last month, I believe it was. And uh, I'll actually, I'll have notes that go along with this episode so that if there are any links uh, like to those interviews, uh, we can add those links or if there are, we can put a link to your website and all those sorts of things. Okay. Great. So I know that, uh, uh, you know, I've read your book as well. I know that your path spans some 50 years and I don't think that we'll be able to <laughs> condense that entire path into the time that we have today. But I'd certainly like to capture as many key points as we can. Yeah, 50 years is a long time, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Discouraging, I think, for most. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know one of the questions that I have is, is at what, what point in time... Would you say that your spiritual search became conscious? And what I mean by that is that you you realized that there was a possibility of getting answers to whatever it was that that bothered you or that your question was. That was really only in the last five years. Mm-hmm. That was really only from from 2005 on. And in fact, um, at that time, I, up to that time, I didn't ever realize that I was on a spiritual path. And I thought I was a complete beginner at that point, you know, and that everybody else, you know, understood and knew so much more than I did. And it took me a good while. It was after I awakened that I suppose that I really realized the fact that I had been forever trying to be a person of integrity, a person of character. This, this was the kind of language I used to myself was actually a very useful background. I mean, it actually was the spiritual path, hmm. only I didn't have that name for it. And I didn't become conscious uh, that, you know, that my idea was that I was going to make the most of myself or be the best that I could uh, in this lifetime. And I expected to go on till my deathbed. And then, you know, it was just hope for the best, hope I'd done enough, whatever that was. Uh, that would be the programming from, you know, Catholicism as a child. Um, and it wasn't until I came across Tat in 2005 and heard the idea that, you know, this actually 
this fruition can happen before the body dies and that it's called enlightenment. Well, of course, I knew about enlightenment and that, but I just had never never thought of applying it to myself. I had thought that was for, you know, special people or different. I don't know. I certainly didn't think that I fell into that category. So I, I was actually quite resistant to the idea when I came to TAT first. I remember telling somebody, oh, I'm not interested in enlightenment. I just want to be a person of integrity. Of course, not realizing that... Uh, they were the same thing. And how would you define a person of integrity? What do you mean by that? Integrated. Ah. Uh, you know, uh, all the parts have, be- have become one. Becoming one, really, is what it amounts to. Um, uh, you know, I would have thought of it as being a person of consistency and uh, groundedness, you know, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, being consistent, being in, con- inner consistency would have been an idea I had, and equanimity, and uh, you know, we'd say morality or ethical. An ethical person would have been part of it, a person of character. And I would suppose I would have gotten those ideas from all my reading of you know classical literature and things like that. You know, the idea of the hero who uh, rises above their situation to become something more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would have been the kinds of ideas that I informed me. And I won't say, con- well, not that consciously, but all the time trying to move myself in that direction. Mm-hmm. Did you have a, a model or a particular models, people that you looked up to as, as being people of integrity? I did have a sense what a person of integrity was. And I had had this from when I was a teenager because I knew specifically that there were some people had more integrity than others. And I also knew it was nothing to do with their personality because I could recognize that there were people who were very charismatic and extroverted and all of this, but they were not people of integrity and sometimes there were others whose personality you know wasn't all that shining or charismatic but they were a person of integrity and this was I don't know how I knew that but this was something that I knew in myself and as I say from when I was quite young and as to how I would have known that I cannot tell you but the funny thing is that in the last few years I have met a number of people who've picked up this exact same thing in myself and uh, mm-hmm. some of them quite young. And they, like, it's, and I recognise that it was something that used to happen to me. They don't know what it is. I mean, one of them... I do Airbnb uh, during the summer, and I might have had, over the last couple of years, maybe 30 people, mostly single people, who are travelling around. And of that, I think about five of them specifically said to me before they left things like... They wanted to grow up like me or they wanted to be like me when they were older. There would have been no conversation about spiritual path or nothing like that. And I could see what had happened. They've picked up on something that they can, that I would have called integrity and they want to be like that. Hmm. And it's the exact same thing that was going on with myself when I was younger. I, When you mentioned integrity, uh, what sprung to my mind was there's a picture that is in Uspensky's book, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. It has a 
It has an outline of a person's head, and inside it are little boxes. And inside each box, the, the word I is written. And so it symbolizes mm-hmm. how, how a person is made up of a multitude of eyes. So is, yes. is that something that you had a, a sense of when you were younger, that you had conflicting desires and wishes? Hmm. Um, well, I came across the Gurdjieff teachings myself uh, when, it, when I was around 30 or less. And it made a whole lot of sense to me, this, you know, all the different eyes, mm-hmm. the fragmented, being inwardly fragmented. Um, so I suppose that's uh, the opposite of being integrated, mm-hmm. being able to see these, you know, just being fragmented in whatever ways, because it made sense to me. Although before that, I, I wouldn't have thought of it in that way, really. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of it in terms of being fragmented before that. Or before running into the Gurdjieff material? Yeah. I mean, it was... So that material articulated something that I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I I know that you were raised Catholic. Uh, What... Mm -hmm. And and you've mentioned it sounds like this idea of being a person of character was something that sprung from your Catholic upbringing. Were there other attitudes or aspirations or practices that you carried with you from that upbringing? You know, I lived in a country where there were only Catholics. So all of the cultural ideas and everything that I got... They weren't separated from mm. Catholic ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, because I've met, you know, people who are Catholics in other countries and it's quite different. Um, you know, it was like they're a, they were a separate group with a separate set of values. Whereas for us, it was just these were the cultural values of the time, of the way that I grew up. You know, um what were the values? I mean, I suppose as much as anything, there were the values of the actual household that I grew up in. You know, the stuff that you know we did in school and the kind of books that we read and things like that. There wasn't any separate. They weren't. They weren't separate mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, we. I, mean, I was. Wouldn't have been brought to church until I was about seven, uh, because we lived in the country and we didn't have a car, so there wouldn't be much church going. So it wasn't that it wasn't that kind of Catholicism that was church going and that kind of thing. It was more kind of the kind of values of, um, you know, p- people would say things. Oh, uh, what kind of things would they say? You know, things like it was God's will, and you know, we thank God that every child is healthy in this house. You know, just that kind of atmosphere of gratitude. And this was quite there was a lot of poverty around, but a lot of gratitude and. Um, a sense of helping each other. I suppose it comes from poverty. You know, that was the attitude. And everybody had it. I mean, people would say, God bless you, and, you know, this kind of thing. Um, just as a, in the same way as people say hello nowadays. It was some kind of a sense of something bigger. And there was a sense of the transcendent everywhere. Mm. Uh, at least that was... 
you know that there was something there was something more than us than us human beings uh, around there was something greater that we were answerable to or were sustained by I, I don't know I mean it was a child wouldn't have that language but that was the atmosphere as if we were in a crucible of uh, something greater hmm. Now you moved to the United States at some point did that move give you any perspective on your upbringing or a contrast to that way of life? It did. Um, I, I was in my 30s when that had happened. My marriage had broken up. I had two small children and uh, I lived in a country where there was a ban on marriage because of the Catholic Church. So really it was a, a pretty difficult situation for me. So moving to the United States, um, I really found my feet again. I began to become... You know, people in the United States weren't appalled or distressed or whatever it was. They were used to people whose marriages had broken up, whereas it was very unusual in Ireland in the early 80s. And people didn't know what to do with it. and There were no role models and everything uh, Mm -hmm. about it. But what happened uh, with that was I, um, I became... I became healthy emotionally and every other way healthy again during that time. The other thing I did, there was very little by way of psychological therapy available in Ireland at that time. So I uh, got myself a lot of therapy uh, Mm -hmm. because I was trying to understand what had happened that my marriage had broken up. And I wanted to be sure that such a thing would never happen again, that I wouldn't get into another relationship but very quickly, the therapist started asking me about my family of origin. And of course, I didn't think this is, there was any problem with this, that I was going to, I just wanted to figure out about relationships with men. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, quickly, it got me right back into uh, looking at my family of origin and the culture that I had grown up in. And uh, yeah, I, I got a lot of benefit from that. And I really think it was a stage of me maturing. Psychological maturity is what happened during that phase. And I got that from having the distance from the culture I was brought up in. I needed to get away from it Mm -hmm. to be able to see how it had affected me. Mm -hmm. Now, I've read read you uh, talk about the transition from psychological to spiritual work. Uh, do you feel like that is uh, that's common among people that transition? Um, I think that one of the big obstacles to people uh, who are on a spiritual path is that if they're not already reasonably mature psychologically, and I say this on the basis of you know the experience I've gained over the last the last couple of years of having uh, you know young people. In fact, they don't even have to be young, and um, they can be older people who you know wanted you know want to be spiritually awakened, but actually they haven't even really become psychologically mature. Um, yeah, insofar as sort of having you know, gotten over their parents. And I don't mean become better than their parents or anything like that, but becoming sort of inwardly free from the emotional ties. Um, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes people are physically 
you know, they're making their own living and all of that kind of stuff, but they're not emotionally mature. And I don't know how better to explain that to you. So I do think that that's a hindrance to, um, you know, to to further development. It may not be a total hindrance, but I think it's... Uh, and it doesn't take a lot of... a lot. Sometimes it's just, you know, having some discussion with people and talking about this and they they realise that they've been... Uh, still caught up with some kind of, you know, seeking parental approval or, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, I think it was Joseph Campbell, the uh, mythologist, said, you know, if you're still looking for approval from your parents at 40, there's a problem. (laughs) Uh, You know, and uh, that it's a necessary, it's a necessary step in your maturation. Uh, to grow out of your parents and not, it doesn't mean becoming superior to them or anything like that. You know, recognising they're just two ordinary folk, you know, who happen to have you and, you know, did the best they could for you. I'm presuming in most cases, parents do do the best they can. And, you know, people still being tied up. And I really, you know, feel that the whole Freudian thing of blaming the parents really encourages psychological immaturity. Mm hmm. Now, if if someone comes to you and they are they have issues like those, is that something that you feel you can help people with, or do you do you tell them you know you need to to go see a, a professional therapist? It depends. I it if somebody comes and they're you know they've had a life crisis and they're having problems, I do think a, a professional therapist can be very helpful. Uh, with working through things. And I would say to somebody, you know, maybe a few sessions with somebody might help you talk through this. And I, they would be more skillful than I in in doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I do think... And because I benefited so much myself from uh, therapy, and I was around 40 at that stage, and uh, it really made a big difference to me. Uh, yeah, I also read a lot at that time. I read a book by, I don't know if you've heard the name, John Bradshaw, who's an American therapist. I think he was a priest, an ex-priest, and he'd written a book called The Family. And he describes uh, the roles of, the roles we take on in the family. He talks about a, a family as a system. And, uh, you know, and that system is, um, is it's um, it's a response to the culture that it's in. Mm-hmm. So the type of family that you have in one culture is go- or how a family operates in one culture is going to be different from how a family operates in another culture or in another time and another era. And reading this book gave me a sense of distance uh, about being a member of a family, that a family is just a system and there and that I was a cog in the system of my family and my family is a cog in the system of the culture that I'm in and so on. And I found that that was that gave me a great distance um, in understanding the influences that one is that as an individual that I was under as a result of you know the time and situation that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to be beneficial to anybody, you know, because when you're young, uh, you know, you just your family is the whole world. And then to get that sort of distance from it and be able to see that your family is just is a cog in a wheel in another machine and that you're a cog in that one. That kind of thing is, I think, is useful to somebody 
getting a long distance view of, of what you are yourself really mm-hmm. now you moved you moved back to Ireland at at some point when that happened yeah. did you find yourself falling back into old ways of being old roles or were you a changed person I was a changed person um, because I had matured uh, as a result of and I'd learned a lot about myself and you know psychology and so on the other thing was that my children had pretty much grown up they were both going to college by the time I came back so the mothering role was coming to an end anyway mm -hmm. and I uh, I never really got lost in the culture in the same way because I did have a, a, a another view. And, of course, the other thing was Ireland itself or the culture here had changed during that per period. In fact, it, it was undergoing a lot of change and, uh, you know, becoming a bit better off and, you know, t television and the Internet and all of that kind of stuff was happening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was much more contact. It was a less isolated place. Um, and also Amazon became available around that time. So I now was able to get myself books that w I would not have been able to get my hands on before that. And that was really my lifeline. Mm-hmm. So it, I'm trying to get a sense of of the conception that you had in your mind of you know, becoming a person of character, becoming a person of integrity, and that that switch that happened to, I, I guess it was five or so years ago, of where you realized that, what what exactly was it that you realized that there was there was something called enlightenment that you could achieve that I, I'm just not clear on that that switch that happened mm. for you, like five years ago, right. Or before that? Uh, well, when you when yeah. you when you realized that there was something that there could happen in this lifetime, uh, a mm -hmm. permanent change, I guess maybe you called it. I don't know. Well, one of the things that happened to me was I felt that I had been wasting. I had wasted my whole life trying to become a person of integrity. That the problem was that I wasn't a person at all. Mm. That I had a wrong idea of what. I was trying to achieve or what I was what I was trying to do. And I had always been my whole life had been kind of driven by or I had been following a lead, shall we say, uh, towards in being a person of integrity. And the first time I went to Tash and by the time I left, I'd gotten the idea that actually I, my whole life had been a big waste trying to be something that I was not and that that was the problem. So um, I was quite upset about that, needless to say, because what I was at then, well, I also at the same, yeah, so the definition or the idea I got at that stage or picked up that it was a problem of misidentification, uh, that I was trying to be something that I was not. And no matter how perfected uh, the thing I was trying to be was, it still wasn't going to do the job. So I changed tack. Mm. Uh, about what I was trying to do and I started doing things that would um, what shall we say <sighs> reverse in, in tat language reverse from untruth mm. um, started trying to, to drop 
or trying to lose. Well, I started trying to identify what were my beliefs, what were my motivations, my expectations and so on, and examining them in light of um, what was their validity and that kind of thing. Hmm. That sounds like a, a very radical shift. Did you think of it that way at the time? It was a radical shift, and it, as I said, it was quite a, it was quite a shock to me to, to you know and to feel that I had spent forty years doing something that was on the wrong track. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the interesting thing was that things moved very fast for me. So I can only think that the work I had been doing prior to coming to TAT had actually set a very good groundwork mm-hmm. um, in some way. Mm-hmm. I, it was the first time I came across the expression um, self-inquiry. And I thought, oh, this is a whole brand new thing, you know. I've never heard of self-inquiry before. And, you know, this is the method, you know, and I'll do this. But afterwards, I realized I had read several books that actually they were self-inquiry, only they didn't have that title on them. So I had been doing self-inquiry before I ever came to Tash. Mm-hmm. Only I didn't call it that. I might have called, I mean, I wouldn't even have called it examining my conscience, but looking deeply into my life and questioning what I was doing. I mean, there was a lot of, I was very self-reflective and always questioning what I was doing it and why I was doing it and... Um, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, picking up ideas in different places. And I would have read a lot. So I think there was a slow accumulation of ideas mm-hmm. that were moving in a particular direction. And th- I think the whole thing got much more focused and sharpened and articulated more clearly when I went to TAT. But the thing is, the fact that I was able to hear it, I think was because I had already done so much reading and thinking and trying to... I had been doing this kind of work, only not using the the same kind of language with it. As you were talking, I was thinking that uh, those listening might get the impression that uh, for you, this you know, you were reading a lot and thinking a lot, and maybe you know, it might sound it might sound like this was a very intellectual exercise for you. Yet I've I've read you, or you've written that uh, your strategy was sincerity, and I was curious if you could talk more about that and how you tried to get a feel for what people were writing as opposed to building concepts about the spiritual path. I used to watch DVDs that uh, I think you yourself made them off because I couldn't go to TAT very often. And you had recorded the speakers at, a, you know, a couple of things like we'll say 2005 and 2006. And I listened to them again and again. And one of the things I used to do was... Uh, this is now after I listened to them at first just to get I was looking for knowledge for information you know tell me facts tell me things Mm -hmm. kind of thing but after listening a few times I started doing a thing of um, say somebody was speaking and I would say I wonder what would be the mindset of somebody that said that what assumptions do they not have in order to make that statement or to ask that question Mm -hmm. So what does that person, that speaker, 
not have? Why could I not make that statement? What interferes with me making that? What assumption or belief or something? Does that make sense to you too? It was as if I sort of put myself in the place of the person who made a certain statement, whatever it was, or talked about a certain thing, and tried to feel what what that was like and to feel what in me would interfere with me being able to say that. Do you well, get what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. That's, I really appreciate you saying that because I don't, I don't think that's something that I ever would have thought about trying. And I did, you know, I would do the same with, uh, particularly with emails from art. Now, this was after I was in Tat and doing this kind of stuff. And when I would get an email from him and maybe he'd make a statement or ask me a question, I would be like I would, as if, kind of move, think, move into the space that his, of course, I was making up what might his headspace be, but... What about my headspace was different from his headspace? Because I was really trying to understand what he was asking me. It was like, well, what does he really mean by that question? So I was trying to, trying that on in order to answer properly or to come up with um, a, 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 an appropriate answer. That's kind of how it started, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, for those listening, that's Art Tickner that you're referring to, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know another thing that I think people might find useful to hear about is uh, your meditation practice. And I've again, I've read you uh, say that you struggled with getting a regular meditation practice. Can you tell tell people a little bit about that struggle and and how or if you finally found something that worked for you? Yeah, um, I had. The first time I learned a meditation practice, I was 28, and I learned TM. And uh, that's 20 minutes twice a day. I had two small children at the time. And, you know, I just could not find 20 minutes twice a day. I lasted about a week. Then, so I, I let that go. And then between that and, I suppose, until I was, for the next more than 20 years... I probably learned 10 different versions of meditation between one thing and another. I'd go to this meditation weekend or this session or I would get something on a tape and I would learn something and it would last two days. So I finally realized at some point that, you know, I'm just I'm just an undisciplined personality. I'm just not able to do it. Be a bit like I'd be one of those people that say I'm going to go on a diet and it would last two days. I wouldn't have that inner discipline to do something like like that, it seemed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came across uh, Douglas Harding's work, and Douglas described seeing as meditation for the marketplace. Mm. So this is something you could do when you're walking around during the day in the house, and I thought, this is the one for me. If I can't do this, I... You know, I, I just, I'm never going to be able to meditate. So I really took it on as a practice because it was something I could do when I'm walking around and washing the dishes and uh, so on. And I did. And it, it, I mean, I was persevering about it. It wasn't that I, you, you know, because sometimes people have said to me, you said you were undisciplined, so but you did that. In other words, I found oh, a meditation that I could do in the way that suited my personality. 
Mm-hmm. I couldn't do the disciplined thing. And in a way, I think that's kind of taking a look at yourself and seeing, well, how do I function? There's no point in me trying to do something that I can't do. And it's almost like, can I see what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? So, you know, maybe time management or discipline in that way wasn't my strength, but perseverance was. Hmm. You know, once I said I'm going to do this throughout the day, and it might be a minute here and a minute there and five minutes here, you know, but it was something I could do in that way. So therefore I could make use of it. And I did. Mm -hmm. Do you recall if that was uh, after you went to that first TAP meeting that you came across Harding's work or before? Well, actually, I had come across Harding in about 1990 um, while I was living in the States. Ah, okay. And I had tried reading it. I actually had a copy of the Hierarchy of Heaven, is it Heaven and Earth? Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I had ordered from the University of Florida. But I was a science teacher, so I tried to read it with a science mind. And Mm -hmm. that didn't work. In other words, I tried to read it intellectually. Mm-hmm. However, I did get something from it, which I didn't realize the benefit of at the time. I would have told you I didn't get it. But what I did get from it was, you don't own your own face. Mm. Uh, other people own your face. In other words, you're the, in a room, you're the only person who doesn't see your own face. I really, really got that because experientially there, you could absolutely see it. So for Years after that, in fact, until I came to TAT, I don't know how often it happened, probably every day, at least several times a week, somebody would say something about, oh, you're looking well today, Tess, or did you get your hair cut, Tess, or something. And every time that happened, I had this stop effect. It was the, I would have called the Douglas Harding effect Mm. of, I was reminded that the view that they had was totally different from the view that I had at that moment. I was looking at their face and they were looking at mine, totally different views. Now, I didn't know what to do with it or what to make of it, but I, you know, I kept being reminded of it. And I often found myself sitting in some place and, you know, realizing that exact same thing in a way, realizing that the only face in this room that I can't see, and it's the same for everybody else, we don't see our own faces. And, you know, there's a space where your face, where you thought your face is or you know, something like that, or where other people see it. But I, I had no way to understand it. I I knew it and I could experience it and it would just pop up and remind me of itself, so to speak. But I couldn't intellectualise about it or anything other than just to describe it. Um, mm-hmm. When I started, when I took on the practice of, of uh, seeing as meditation, then I started reading Douglas's books. And of course, he just his his writing is absolutely beautiful. He just keeps giving you language about this. Is it not so that at this moment in first person present tense, you can see whatever? So his language and his articulation of it, hmm. um, I found that uh, it's just a, it's an antidote to conditioning, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's a contradiction to the to the other programming. Mm-hmm. Now, I know one thing that you that you did was go on solitary retreats. I, I think that's correct. Yeah. What's uh, What was I the did, value yeah. that you found in that? You know, I think that was probably the best thing 
that I ever heard of. The idea had never struck me before. Uh, and I would have had plenty of time in my life to spend time on my own, but I thought, you know, I should occupy the time with a nice novel to read or mm-hmm. something else. You know, I didn't realise I could really use it for, you know, self-inquiry or self-observation or something. Basically, what I started doing was um, I wasn't working a lot of this time, at least I would have had time during the week. I would go away on a Tuesday morning, leave two dinners for my husband and come back on Thursday and cook the dinner on Thursday. Because I also had this idea that um, my spiritual practice had to fit into my daily life in a way that was not disruptive of anybody else or anything else. Mm-hmm. That I had to I had to use my daily life and fit it into it in the most um, in the most unobtrusive way possible. So that was my way of dealing with self-inquiry rather, or with, uh, with solitary retreat rather than going off for a week here and a week there or a month. That would have been disruptive and it would have been a bit difficult. Seamus wouldn't have liked it. Mm-hmm. So I used to do this. And I used to do this about every six weeks over a couple of years. And uh, it changed over time. At first... Well, it felt very strange, I think, the first time I went off and spent two days on my own and didn't bring any entertainment and so on. It felt long and I wondered what I was at and, you know, that kind of thing. Then um, I I suppose I kept a journal. I would, you know, bring one book. Art's recommendation was, Art Tickner's recommendation was, bring something that you've already read and that you found inspiring. So in other other words, you don't get the novelty of a new book to entertain you. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I would do that. And at first, I mean, so first of all, I had to learn how to spend a couple of days on my own with my focus on self-inquiry or self-observation or, you know, doing my meditation practice, whatever the thing was. I used to eat light. I used to do fasting. I think fasting might be difficult for women, just the way our bodies are. So I would eat light, which gives you, you know, greater mental clarity and that. Mm -hmm. So after a few sessions of this, what I found happening was old memories were coming up. You know, memories from childhood and, you know, I was even at the point after a few things of, will will I ever, will my whole time be spent remembering things from childhood and I didn't I didn't have much negative stuff from my childhood there were quite there weren't big issues there were you know when I looked at them as an adult uh, there wasn't any abuse or anything like that in my household uh, you know I mean there was there was very little I didn't I didn't have anything to complain about or much to hold on to and after another few sessions of uh, solitary retreat even that stopped mm-hmm. so there was just nothing like it was like the thoughts stopped just emptiness mm-hmm. um I suppose other things began to happen but there was progress in me or a shift in me a change in me from when I started uh, doing the solitary retreats and the two-day thing worked very well for me. Uh, did you have like a fundamental question? Um, I remember you mentioned when you came away from that first TAP meeting that you you sort of questioned like, you know, this personality or this character that you had been working so hard to build that maybe that wasn't even real. Did Was there a question mm. that that drove you after that like 
you know, the classic who am I or or what happens after death or was there yeah. something like that for you? Well, I, I remember in that first Tash weekend, people talking about this, you know, well, what is your question and can you identify your question? And I always knew that my major issue was about death. Mm. Mm-hmm. It was about death and dying. But I, was ne- I wasn't able to formulate it into a question like, you know, it wasn't that I was afraid of death. It wasn't, I, I couldn't name what it was. But I knew that my core question and my core anxiety was around death and dying. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, it just, uh, I couldn't formulate anything about it because it was just so, you know, I couldn't deny the fact that bodies die, but at the same time, I, you know, was like, how can consciousness die? And yet it must do. I mean, I, I couldn't formulate it into a question, but it was the thing that troubled me. And I remember thinking if, I, if somebody had a magic wand and could resolve your question or resolve things for you, what would, you, what would your question be? And I thought, well, it would be something about death. Uh, but I couldn't name, I, I couldn't articulate what it was, but I did know, and I did know that that was, was what had driven my whole life. It was like, I don't know, like a default question that was in the background all the time from when I was a child. You know, you know, what does it all mean if you're just going to die in the end? You know, why not die now? Or any kind of thing. Um, I, it was... It, Actually, it turns out that's Woody Allen's problem as well, you know. Uh-huh. Woody copped onto it when he was five. I think that must be why I like his films so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because he's, um, you know, that's the thing that, like, oh, gee, I, how can you live with this? Yeah, that was always there. And I used to bring it up with other people and they used to tell me not to be so serious and just not be complaining or things like that. But it wouldn't go away. Mm-hmm. Sometimes nowadays I ask people, I don't so much say to them, you know, what's your question? I ask them, what's the biggest issue for you? What's the issue, the fundamental issue that troubles you? I find that a useful uh, way to say it. If someone asked you now, well, Tess, what what happens to you at death? What would be your answer? Well, of course, what you are doesn't die. Hmm. I mean, what dies is uh, never was, really. The only thing that dies is the ego. It never was. It was just, I don't know, a a bunch of hot air of thoughts and beliefs and such things. Mm. Um, But what we are doesn't die. It's, it's, it's what's real. It's the truth. But, you know, there's no point in saying that to anybody, you know, until they find it for themselves. I mean, that's the whole point of, you know this transformation that happens is uh, coming to that place from the place of confusion and misinformation and misidentification. It's uh, it's coming to that, being vulnerable to that possibility happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe I've I've heard you mention uh, Richard Rose's idea of that uh, we back into the truth by backing away from untruth. And yeah, it's an elegant description and an appealing description, but I think sometimes people struggle with, well, what does that mean in in day to day life or uh, in my meditation? Can you talk a little bit about mm. how you approached that idea? 
Well, you know, even realizing that um, something that you believed was a false belief, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, you know, say living, you know, could be something like you realize I mightn't even be yourself or somebody else that living their whole lives, you know, well, the idea we'll say that um, money makes you happy. And, you know, spending all your time and your whole belief system being that money makes you happy. And then when you get it, you realize it hasn't. So now that belief will fall away. So that was, we'll say, a false belief or a false idea or an idea that actually the reality of it doesn't work. I mean, that's the whole message of uh, the film Citizen Kane. Have you seen Mm, it? uh, Yes, it's been a while, but yeah. Long, long ago, long, long ago. I mean, even when I was young, that's long before anybody else nowadays. And the girl who's downtown and having a great time with all her friends and she's beautiful and the rich man marries her. And the last scene in the film is she's standing in this palace, you know, with a chandelier above her and she's all the money in the world, but she's there on her own and she's lonely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. You know, so the belief or, yeah, or the expectation that, you know, Riches will make you happy. And so here you see an example of it. Well, that doesn't work. So that kind of thing is how I think somebody backs away from untruth, reverses from untruth, seeing things that we have believed and seeing that actually they're maybe they don't deliver what they promised. And then you maybe go looking for something else. So a process of working in that way. And then, it, of course, it'll come down to more personal things, personal ideas that one had that, um, uh, you know, when you see the falsity of it or they become shaky or something. And mm-hmm. because beliefs really stop us. Yeah, beliefs really stop us from, I suppose, from becoming ourselves. They're the, I mean, beliefs to me are the, they prevent us from facing our own debts. I mean, they're a security blanket against facing our own debt. That's what I found happened to me as the beliefs fell away. Um, no, there was no, I, I had nothing to, nothing as security against the inevitability of debt. Mm. I want to go back for a minute to your description of your solitary retreats in that, uh, mm. You described how at, at first, or how at first, things would come up from old memories and so forth, and then later mm-hmm. on, it sounded like uh, there was a lot of sitting in silence, perhaps, or the mind was quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, can can you describe at all what what you were doing or or not doing uh, in those periods of time? Were were you watching the mind or how would you describe that well for one thing the place i used to go to was close to um was beside it it way out in the country close to a bog and i would go for a walk down through the bog and i i found i becoming much more aware of the sky and the changing clouds and the sounds of the birds because there was nothing interfering with it Mm -hmm. and i began to notice this happening to me that it was like as if everything had become much more alive, and but really it was because I was becoming much more present. There wasn't there wasn't any interference from my mind. I'm not saying there wasn't any at all, but there was less and less. Um, so that kind of uh, that would have been one of the things I'd have noticed. 
Um, I also became, well, I became able to notice much more subtle kinds of thoughts and subtle kinds of feelings, you know, um, and even when I would come back from there, you know, thoughts about, you know, running a household and going round town and meeting people. So they're at a much grosser level. But when I had, when there was no stimuli coming in, I, I could see a more, the more subtle kinds of things that came up. And that also meant the more subtle shifts in emotions or in feelings. Although I like to make a distinction between emotions and feelings, being that emotions are felt in the body, whereas there's, there's an aspect to us which is a feeling aspect and it doesn't have a component in the body. At least it didn't. It doesn't seem to have for me. Like, for instance, if we see something beautiful, I don't think that there's any, you know, any, our, our body doesn't show it any place, but we know it and we feel it. Mm-hmm. So becoming more aware of the feeling side um, and the more subtle kinds of thoughts that would arise, the still small voice, as they would say in Christian terms, hearing little thoughts that would have been drowned out by the grosser, louder thoughts of daily life. That kind of thing also came on board. And the thing is, while that sort of came on board or I became aware of that during solitary retreat, it would remain when I got back home. It was like I had identified, you know, once you've seen something once, then you recognize it when you see it again. But I needed that solitary time and that quiet time in order to begin to notice it. So I came to notice or to recognize or to be able to observe myself in a more subtle way. Bob Ferguson mentioned about how he would go on a retreat or go on a hike up into the mountains and he would get a particular feeling. But the real challenge was to bring that back into his everyday life. Yeah, I found that it just over time, it just became part of my daily life, like a new dimension of me got developed and then remained with me. And the the couple of days solitary retreat seemed to boost boost its development, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it just boosted my awareness of it. But would you say that uh, intuition and feeling are the same thing? <laughs> um, there's definitely a close relationship between them. Um, because in that silence, you know, the still small voice uh, in the sense of hearing a, just a subtle thought, a quiet little thought pass by and you look and you think, gee, and it's like as if it comes out, it's come out of the blue. Where did that come from? And I would have known that it didn't come from anything I'd read because it would always be surprising or startling. And at first it was just, you know, gee strange idea. In fact, I wasn't even sure of them in the beginning when this would happen. I wouldn't even be... And what I also noticed about them, they they always just went by once. They didn't stop by to have a discussion with you or to repeat themselves. So I became more sharp about noticing that every so often a surprising thought would just go by and either I caught it or I didn't. Mm-hmm. So I'd be on the, I was on the watch out for them. And over time, with that being on the watch out for them, they became not just one thought, individual thoughts, they became thought streams. Like, And there was a certain quality that I recognised, and I don't think I can explain that quality to you, but it became that, we'll say, 
the Tess voice, or coming from the Tess ego, whatever you want to say, could have discussions with this other voice. And it wasn't it wasn't a sound voice, it was a thought stream. It would be just maybe a thought or a thought stream, and they would have a discussion or a talk back and forth about maybe something. And it would just say what it had to say. And there were times when I asked for more and I just got silence. In other words, enough for you now. Hmm. (laughs) I'd been given enough. So that's why I called that intuition, because it was guidance from within. Hmm. Intuition, tuition from within. Hmm. And um, I recognised the quality of it. And sometimes when this would happen, I would think, gee, am I just making that up or... You know, I don't know where that came from. And almost always I had a dream that night which confirmed my understanding or showed it to me from another angle. Or um, It was definitely on the same theme. And this would often happen now later on when I would be in that space when I'd be wondering about something. Wonder, I wonder what that means. You know, that kind of mindset... Wasn't a, it would be fairly a light, relaxed kind of mindset of, you know, wondering about something. And then one of these thoughts would come and sometimes they turned into um, a discussion or a little talk between two thought streams. And I was often, I was in fact always given guidance or information or not so much that as actually a suggestion of a possibility. It was almost like I was being prepared for something that was going to happen, but I needed to be prepared a little bit by the by the idea having passed by. And then when I would be not sure or confident about it or wonder about it, I would get a dream that would somehow show me, would show it more clearly. And, uh, yeah, I just felt like I was being prepared or for something, being given, a, you know, a little bit of premonition. You know, it would happen within hours or the next day. I mean, it was always very pertinent to the time. It was, when that happened, it was to do with now or inside the next 24 hours. It, it wasn't for down the road in a week's time or something. It was a very immediate kind of thing and very specific to me. Mm-hmm. Any of these things or these conversations applied only to me. They're, and I don't remember them, actually but they would not have been of any value to anybody else. Now, were those were those instances of dreams or conversations, is that something that developed more over the years, or has it always been a part of your life? Um, it, it became a significant thing in the last few years of my life. I mean, it, really a significant part of it. I... Th- um, I think I might have had some slight inclination in that direction always because I'd uh, I'd always been interested in dreams and I was aware... Okay, now, this would have been very occasionally, like maybe once in 10 years, I would have had a dream that warned me against something. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be heavy duty or anything, but it would, I would interpret it and think, oh, gee, that's suggesting don't do that. And there were times when I ignored it. And when I did, I realised that I paid dearly. And when I went with it when I took the advice or accepted it uh, I never knew what would have happened if it hadn't but it seemed like a good idea so I did have an element of trust of that kind of thing but it wasn't a common thing in my life I wouldn't even have talked about it or told you about it or didn't give it certainly didn't give it any great significance 
and I just assumed it was like this for everybody else and it probably is. But in the last few years before the awakening, this had become um, quite, a, quite a feature of my life. It was happening on a regular basis uh, and the dreams were happening on a regular basis as well. Uh, so, I, you know, I couldn't be unaware of it. Uh, after you met the the tat group, I'm curious if you had any difficulty with uh, preconceptions about what awakening would be like or enlightenment would be like, if you thought it'd be a particular way, or, or if you managed to, to keep an open mind about that. I didn't really have any preconceptions about it because I didn't expect it to happen to me and I wasn't interested in it. Hmm. I, I, I just wasn't interested in it um, at all because I didn't have any anticipation of it happening to me. And by the time I realised that this was happening to me, it was too late for me to go asking about it or finding out because I, I had sort of lost the ability to read much or to take stuff in at that stage um, in some way. Hmm. Um, so I hadn't... I remember one time being at a TAT retreat and... Uh, maybe yourself and whoever other guys were sitting on the podium and people were asking, well, what is it like afterwards and all of this? And uh, I just closed my ears to it because I wasn't interested. And I sat there worrying about this business of misidentification. I clearly remember that Hmm. thinking, I'm not who I think I am. So what am I instead? How would I go about this? And I, I remember specifically that. So I wasn't interested in what it was like because... Well, it wasn't going to apply to me. I mean, I was a beginner as far as I was concerned. Mm. It actually saved me a lot of spiritual ego. I mean, I've heard so much since of people talking about things getting caught up with spiritual ego and so on. And I think it saved me a lot of trouble in that department. Mm. Hmm. But you but you don't feel like uh, you were hindered in any way by a belief that, oh, well, I, that could never happen to me? Or... Well, I had only heard about the possibility in 2005. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it was, oh, that's a possibility. Oh, okay. And, uh, and then it was, oh, well, you know, I'm just a beginner anyway and this, I don't. And what my problem was, I didn't understand a lot of the tad language, like reversing from untruth and Jacob's ladder and egoless vector. I mean, this kind of language, I was, you know, what is that about? So I would be, because I didn't understand a lot of the language, I felt I was a real beginner mm-hmm. uh, and had to come at things somehow in my own way. Mm-hmm. Um it was just a vocabulary thing, really, looking back on it, because I, I was getting it, it turns out, but I didn't know I was, you know, in terms of doing something with it. Hmm. Um, so I, I I didn't have any agenda about awakening or not awakening. It was, oh, that's a possibility. Oh, that's grand. Well, you know, I have, I have a lot to do here before I'm anywhere near that. And then uh, what happened was things started happening to me. And I... I realized this process of awakening is happening. I didn't even know that it was a process. Hmm. I mean, I thought it happened suddenly to people. So it was quite a, a surprise to me. And actually, I referred to that as the Annunciation. You know, the whole Catholic thing of the Annunciation and the Angel Gabriel and all that story. I've come to think that it's just... I always thought it was unbelievable. It defied any kind of rationality. But the way the... The way it was, and it was announced to me, 
that there was a spiritual pregnancy taking place. It was it wasn't me. I was the baby in it, hmm. and that it was uh, it was nothing to do with me. Uh, but this was happening, and basically it was out of my hands from now on. This was happening, and uh, I actually was asked to accept it. I was putting up a fight with what I called Universal Mother, this voice that I used to talk with. Said, oh, no, I'm not ready, and I don't understand enough. And um, she let me know that from from that end, from her perspective, I was ready. And actually, she what happened was she showed me... Um, uh, we would say like a, a photograph album which flicked through every decade of my life with just one photograph which showed me at this work and it stopped at the time I was you know a nine year old when the calf died at home that story I've told before mm-hmm. and I don't remember what the other what the photographs were because it happened very quickly and I was like oh so I had been my whole life doing things to facilitate this and uh, she, but she asked for me to agree to go with this, which was a surprise to me, to, to accept that, you know, from her perspective, you know, I called her Universal Mother because I, I didn't know what other name to put on it. And once I accepted that, and I consider that to be what's meant by the Annunciation, and I don't know if other people have been let know of this, if they're let know ahead of time, but I do know that in the Christian terminology, they talk about the active night of the soul and the passive night of the soul, and the active night is when you're doing everything and anything that you can on your end. And the passive night is basically when you surrender to what's happening, it's it's taken over. It's doing it. That's my understanding of it. And that's absolutely what I felt happened. That from then on, I, I had no control over how the spiritual... I never had any control over how it was going. But uh, I continued to do everything that I could to facilita- facilitate it. I had no idea how long it would take or anything, but I was given some clues at various times, but I felt that they were to keep me to keep me steady, shall we say mm-hmm. now, do you still have these instances of intuitions, and if not, what would you say that guides you through life now? I don't have anything like that that all stopped completely with the awakening. In fact, it stopped before that. Um, it it stopped before that, and I was let know when it, the inner guidance, shall we say, stopped nine months before the end. Mm. And so, and, and I've come to think that that's maybe what John of the Cross meant by the dark night of the soul, mm. because it felt like a terrible loss. I mean, the it's like as if you'd lost your mother. Mm. Uh, but also, there was such a such docility. The personality and everything had become so docile and so accepting that there was no, no fight against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it did feel like a, an emptiness and a loss that I, I thought I would have Universal Mother with me forever. So the loss of it felt uh, truly like a dark night, a grey night, like rather than a dark. Yeah. Um, so what guides me now? I don't have any intuition. I don't have anything like that happening now. I don't have any inner guidance telling me what to do or anything. So what guides me now? I, I think it, I don't have any plans or motivation about anything. I just respond to whatever comes up in front of me or whatever is happening. So that's all I do. Mm-hmm. Um 
and there doesn't seem to be any problem with it. It seems to be fine. I, I, I really don't have any hand part or act in it other than responding to what's presented to me. There's a quote of yours I'd like to read and see if perhaps you could comment on it. Uh, and that is that an attitude of acceptance of legitimate suffering leads to awakening. Maybe it doesn't lead to awakening, but it facilitates. It's an attitude uh, of legitimate suffering. Um, I think there is there's two kinds of suffering, or two ways in which suffering happens. We cause our own suffering by wanting what we want and by, you know, ego demands and desires and all of that. So that's not what I'm talking about. But I think that there is suffering in in being a human being, in being in, in a body. Um, I think, as the Buddha said, uh, life is suffering. There's built-in suffering. Everybody has it. We all have aches and pains and physical stuff and we have losses and sorrows and uh, whether or not they're our own or just looking around the world the sorrows for other people and I do think that uh, an acceptance of it rather than fighting it and being self-righteous about it um, acceptance of what is and knowing that everybody else has the same has to deal with their plateful of suffering whatever it is that they've been given I do think that that facilitates well it's acceptance of what is because and another way to put that is it's um, not feeding the ego I mean the ego wants what it wants in its own way so by by with this attitude it's like not letting the ego uh, keep feeding itself it's putting it on a diet is one of the ways I I say that <laughs> I like that in your search, did you come to a point in time where you where you just gave up? Like you felt, oh, you know, this is never going to happen for me. I'm, I'm just going to quit this. Um, I had given up really before I came to TAT. Uh, I had decided I wasn't going to read anymore. I was never going to do learn another form of meditation or anything mm -hmm. uh, like that. You know, I just wasn't smart enough to figure this out. So I had given up at that stage. Uh, you know, I'm just going to live my daily life. I'm going to make the most of it. Um, I had nothing to complain about. I had a lovely husband, wonderful kids. Everything in my life was good, but it was just so empty and dull. So I had given up on becoming a person of integrity, we'll say, or coming to the end of, I don't know, coming to some resolution or something about life. And I was like that for, I don't know, I'm sure a year anyway before I came across the TAT website. Uh, and so it, it was a big startlement and a big surprise to me to come across that website. And uh, I just got completely gripped by mm. it and right back in, mm. um, but in a completely different way from what I'd been do, doing before. Mm -hmm. So I did, now right at the end, um, a week before I awakened, I went through a thing of three days of terror of death and it happened in waves I would it, I, it just suddenly happened standing in my kitchen on Friday I was going on retreat on the Saturday I was gripped with terror of death I mean if you could talk about sweating blood and shaking and my heart pounding and so on and then it stopped and then I'm going on for a couple of hours you know don't even remember it or anything and then it came again 
and it might last five or ten minutes and then there'd be a couple of hours again. So this thing, and even by the Saturday I could see that it was like, it was extraordinary how I could completely forget it in between. But when it happened, I mean, I would was just in an absolutely terrible state. So I was driving to my retreat, um, my, my solitary retreat of a week on the Saturday and I had to stop the car several times and get out because I was so so distraught when a wave of this would come over me I couldn't even drive and I got there on that was on Sunday morning so I and I got there on Sunday morning I begged to die I could not live any longer like this I just I I, I did not want to be alive I did not ever ever again want to go through this suffering Um, it was anything annihilation was better than this horrendous suffering so I got to the retreat and I, I I prayed on the way to, you know, please keep me safe. Let me not drive the car into somebody else, hurt anybody else, cause any suffering. And take me the minute I get there. Yeah. I just can't go on. And from once I got there, it never happened again. And I, I'd forgotten about it until about the Tuesday. And I realised, oh, God, all that fear of death that happened there. I'm going to have to go through that again. Oh, what a pity something didn't happen then. I mean, that was really the terrors of the worst kind. It was exact, and it was three days when I was a kid of nine when the fear of death came on me. It was also a three-day thing, and it came in in waves like that. I mean, almost like the waves of labour. You have a wave of the labour, and then there's a gap, and in that same kind of way, hmm. that same kind of pattern, shall we say, but long gaps in between the waves of terror. Uh, but they were just horrendous. When they came, so I, and I thought, you know, I had, I thought it had been wasted because nothing had happened, and it was on the Saturday night following that that uh, the final thing happened. So I didn't have to go through it again. I believe you mentioned that you were a teacher in your professional life for at least part of it. Yeah. And do you find that that experience has helped you in regards to being a spiritual teacher? I think so, yeah. I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sometimes they laugh, they laugh here and they say to me, oh, you're the real teacher. <laughs> you know, I'm quite likely to take out a chart and make a diagram and, um, you know, articulate things. Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm a trained teacher. I was a science and math teacher. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I guess whatever training you have is what gets used. Mm-hmm. You know, what what created me... <laughs> educated me and made me a teacher and made me awakened and now it's going to use me in its own way for whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, that's how I see it. And do you feel uh, do you feel like you're perhaps more helpful to women on the spiritual path or do you think gender doesn't really make that much of a difference? Hmm... I don't really know. I do seem to attract more women, although I have a good few men as well. We had a retreat recently and there were 12 women and 10 men. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, yeah, so I do seem to, when it comes to a retreat, what I, what I find happening is women feel they can understand me, that I talk, you know, kind of plain, plain ordinary and I use kinds of incidents that are, that they can relate to me or resonate with me. Well, women say that, but men seem to be able to get it as well, I think. I don't really know. You'd have to ask them. 
And what do you, if you had to characterize the the chief obstacles that you see in people that you meet, uh, what would you say those are? I'd say one of them, anyway, is people already have a belief system of some kind, whether they're conscious of it or not, and they're protecting it. Uh, I would have, you know, people coming from different backgrounds and they want everything I say, they want me to rephrase it or to reinterpret it uh, according to whatever their their belief system is, be it Catholicism or Buddhism or whatever. In other words, they want to take what I'm doing it and fit, into, fit it into what they already have. They have mm-hmm. a, a heavy investment in it. And um, that I see as, as, a, as a problem for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I see people, they just want to be awakened. They just want to be, you know, I want to be enlightened and I want to be enlightened now. So it's a goal. And it's almost like... The, you know, the PhD that's better than a PhD, a double PhD. And they're going at it with that, you know, determination and so on. And that seems to be a problem. Hmm. As opposed to kind of an accept, It's going in the opposite direction of accepting what is and letting go of what what isn't, what isn't, what isn't uh, real or true. Um I suppose um, what I call psychological maturity, people who are still tied up with, uh, well, they want, they, they want it all. Now. They want to be well off and have a great relationship and everything else and be enlightened as well. <laughs> you know, I right. wanted, a, I quote, you know, I quote uh, Freddie Mercury. Do you know Freddie Mercury of Queen oh, used to sing a song? I, yeah. I want it all and I want it now. So I, I say that to them. So you want it all and you want it now. Okay. <laughs> And I think that attitude is uh, uh, needs a bit of questioning. Um, what else? What other kind of obstacles do I see? Yeah, sometimes you have people that you know they just they don't want to do the work. They just want you know you tell it all, you do it for me, and well, they want to you know package it into one night a week or going on a retreat. And I keep on saying this is an all day every day thing. Mm-hmm. You you know the fodder for your spiritual path is your daily life. It's not cannot be packaged into one hour or into your ten minute reading in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's throughout the day the thoughts that are rising, the emotions that are rising. It's your da- your daily life is the fodder mm-hmm. to be observed. Uh, so getting that across and that it doesn't have to be anything grand, that it's actually quite mundane. You know, stop expecting something wonderful and grand, you know, but notice when you're walking along and that you, you're you thinking something negative or something positive about somebody or whatever. That's really the thing to notice, that the familiarity. When we're overlooking things just because of the sheer familiarity of them, but that's where the where the real meat is. In the, in the familiarity, familiar thoughts and emotions and patterns. Mm-hmm. Then another type of uh, obstacle I see is people who are of the devotional or emotional type do not want to use their minds. They want they want to say like, oh, it's not. It's all about love, and it's not love is what matters. It's not the mind and the intellectual. And people who are of an intellectual mentality, they want to figure it all out and understand it, and are dismissive of the emotional aspect. And so about that, I say to people, well, whichever 
everybody has emotions and everybody has thoughts and a mind. Mm -hmm. So whichever is your weak side is the side you need to work on. We're, uh, we tend to develop in an unbalanced way. I think, was it Jung used to talk about this in terms of, you know, the male and the female side. And, you know, if the male side is strong, then we need to develop our female side, our emotional, devotional, uh, intuitive side, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So, so th- things like that, they're, they're the kind of things I'm noticing. Mm-hmm. If someone came to you and they said, Tess, I, I just don't know what I should do next, what would you tell them? Well, I'd ask them, what have you been doing? Mm-hmm. And you can't tell anybody what they do next until you hear what they have been doing. And I'd try and I'd ask them, well, what's your understanding of what you're trying to do and try to achieve? Mm-hmm. You know, what's it? So do they have a clear understanding of what they're doing? And why? And then, so what kind of method would you use? What's likely to work? Because, yeah, that's another thing I find with people, you know, they they say, oh, but I have a practice. And I say, what are you practicing for? And they look at me, you know, like, I, well, when you practice, people are practicing for something. What's the goal at the end of practicing? You're not practicing for the sake of practicing. Right. Uh, so trying to clarify what that is and then to talk about maybe the ways to go about it or the way things that might be. Uh, in the way, and it might be, I might suggest that they read a particular book or, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be able to say anything until I talked to the person to see where they were at. And people are very individual in, you know, and where they're at and what their understanding is. And it's a one-to-one thing, I think, this, you know, trying to help somebody. I see it very much as a one-to-one thing. Yeah, that that sort of leads into my next question. I was curious if you... If there were, if someone asked you, well, Tess, what are the core practices in, that you're trying to get across to people? Would you be able to articulate that, or is it just a, is it such a one-to-one thing that you can't generalize? Mm-mm. Well, um, I have articulated it before. I mean, I don't know if I, yeah, I was doing something and I needed to come up with some idea for that. And what I've said is, I think that there are three. Uh, three main ways to go about it. Um, I think self-inquiry, which is using your mind to, using the mind to look at the mind, to observe things, to question things, and um, to notice what is going on with yourself. I think meditation, and I'm using meditation in the sense that the Eastern, or the the Asian uh, teachers use it, which is, I take it to be some version of uh, putting the ego to rest for a while telling it to have a little nap for itself, you know, be it by doing a mantra or following the breath or mindfulness or something like that. Because, you know, our minds or our egos are just, you know, hypervigilant and going crazy all the time and causing all kinds of stress. So some kind of technique to ease that off a bit and to then hopefully be able to observe it, observe some of it or see some of the stuff that's going on. So meditation. And the other practice, I would say, is some version of prayer. And by prayer, I mean um, making making some kind of contact with your inner self. It might be what Richard Rose calls going within or a version of going within. Well, going within is also observing what's going on inside of yourself and noticing it. But the sense of maybe noticing sometimes that there's a silence or an emptiness or a quietness or something like that and resting in that and maybe even 
generating a conversation to it or I don't necessarily mean even with words going along with the idea that there is something within us that we are not aware of and you know just maybe sitting and allowing the possibility of becoming aware of that that's what I mean by prayer I don't mean like saying a whole lot of words and begging for help or something like that trying to get a a a connection or a a a conversation isn't even the right word but a, a sense of something inward and silent and calm or whatever in ourselves and the thing is that develops and I say this on the basis of my own experience that you know this and that's really where intuition comes from so intuition and prayer are closely related I cannot say exactly how mm-hmm. I, I would say from my experience so there are three things self-inquiry prayer and meditation uh, of course also as uh, solitary spending time alone is absolutely beneficial mm-hmm. and reading I mean I think without reading some some good books and useful books you know to get ideas and to help sharpen your sharpen your understanding of what you're at and to get ideas uh, what to do or how to work with yourself and of course it's absolutely I mean to have a teacher um, if one is graced with that blessing Is there a book or books that you often recommend to people? Yes, I recommend uh, Bob Ferguson's book The Listening Attention uh, when people come to me first and that's because it's not a big tome, it's a it's written in simple language, but the message in it and the ideas in it are exactly what the kind of things I want to be talking about with people and discussing. So I find that a very good book um, to get people started with. I like to recommend either of our Tickner's books uh, as books for leaving beside your bed or someplace where you'll pick it up and read a paragraph here and a page there as ongoing inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're they're probably the two. I'm um, and all kinds of other things as well that we do, depending on, uh, you know, how long they're around and uh, what we're doing. But they'd be the ones, the two, the, the main ones I'd suggest. Yeah. Okay. And how about? Uh, I mean, I love films. I'm always curious uh, to ask people if there's a film that they recommend people watch. I mean, my whole life has been a life of reading and watching films and going to plays and listening to music. I mean, it's, I've always had an interest in the arts. And actually, I have picked up, picked up a lot of ideas from the various arts, in, you know, and I think that there was an, it had a cumulative effect uh, along the way. So I was always kind of on the lookout for something. Um, like for and these these films are probably you were probably only a baby when these came out, but I'll mention them anyway. When I was about twenty, um, I saw a film the first time I was ever in the states. It was called John and Mary with Dustin Hoffman in it. Mm. It's a long time ago, and it might even have been black and white. And it's basically this young couple, and they meet each other, and they're chatting each other up, thinking of going on a date. But the way the film is made is there's what they say to each other, and there's a narrator doing each of their voices, what they're thinking but not saying. Uh And I was about 20 when I saw this, and I was just amazed Mm. by it. you know that what's what's going on inside. You know, in other words, our so our, what we're socialized to say and what's really going on. You know, it's, so in film, all kinds of films, I've picked up different bits and pieces along the way. 
at another film that I thought was good, and I see, I think these films may be available free nowadays on because they're so old on uh, YouTube or something. Mm-hmm. A film called My Dinner with Andre. Oh yeah, that's a classic. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great film. You know, all kinds of ideas come up. Just two men sitting having a long conversation over dinner. Um, you know, not all of it. I mean, some of it is was off its time and mm-hmm. wouldn't be so relevant anymore. But talking about the big questions of life, I think that's a useful film mm-hmm. to watch as well. But in more recent times, I thought The Truman Show was a good film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. I liked, I, I very much like American Beauty. Yeah. I mean, you know, I could probably write, if I sat down and thought about it, write a hundred books and a hundred films and a hundred songs, <laughs> all of all of which had, you know, fragments and bits and pieces of something, you know, that if you're following up on something, you know, just all the time picking up little bits and pieces from them. Mm-hmm. Where are your people meeting you these days? I, I think I heard you have more than one group now that's meeting. Yeah, um, well, I've, I've, I've had a group in Galway for a few years now. Um, it's a very small group, you know, there's a, I don't know, I suppose between five and ten come any week, mm-hmm. and it's usually more like five. Uh, but it's an ongoing thing, regulars, we work away together and every week, you know, we'll have some, we'll have something that we do. Um, in more recent times, because I've done a couple of weekend retreats, I do them about twice a year. And uh, out of that, um, there were a number of people in Dublin thought they would like to start getting together. And it turned out to be all women who wanted to get together. So they meet once a month. So it's a women's group in Dublin. And it's not that I'm particularly in favour of women's groups or men's group. But in this case, it's just happened that it's five women who want to work together. So that's actually very interesting for me to see how it will be just to work with women and to see how I can see what, what we can how we can work with that. Mm-hmm. And in Cork City, uh, a group has also formed. And they have, these are all very recent, like inside the last couple of months. So something like between, I don't know, I think about between five and ten people are meeting there regularly. I go down once a month to them. They they meet every second week. Mm -hmm. And they're just finding their feet and finding ways to be with each other and things to do. And I have a, a little online group which has been going on for four or five years as well so I do that every Saturday and I think I have seven people in that Wow that's a lot going on that sounds great yeah it's um it is but it all works very smoothly and easily for me I I, it just seems to happen very easily and smoothly you know Mm -hmm. no big effort and I didn't do anything to set up any of those groups really they just happened and said you know if we got together would you come occasionally and I'd say yeah sure let's figure a time so it's just like that Mm -hmm. and if people wanted to get in touch with you what's the best way to go about that well I have a website tessuse.com okay and there's a contact page on that so they can email me uh, with that Okay, great. Well, that's actually all the questions I have for you, Tess. I really appreciate, again, you taking your time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Sean, very much for asking me. It's been my pleasure.